0: Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have.
1: What is up on a Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, whenever you might be listening to this, I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Rights podcast. Hope everybody had a safe and uh, Merry Christmas out there. Hopefully you spent it with uh, some people you enjoy and had a great holiday and uh, if you're into presents, maybe you got some cool presents. Today, we have Bracken Ray, former Andy Kennedy staffer, if he writes, basketball correspondent on the show, to talk Ole Miss entering SEC play, the bigger picture uh, with the future of this program and probably the typical topics as well as diving into, you know, what this program needs to do to um, be a little bit more competitive in basketball, the flaws with this team, a lot of different stuff. Um, not Maybe not what you're expecting, right? 24 hours or less than 24 hours away from the football bowl game, uh, and we're talking basketball. I just don't have a ton for you on this bowl game. We got some short thoughts at the top of the podcast regarding that and Ole Miss playing Texas Tech at 8 p.m. on Wednesday night in the Texas Bowl there in Houston. But uh, I don't know, running into the Christmas holiday, uh, I guess I could have gotten a Texas Tech guy on. I, I didn't really want to do that Christmas Eve or the day after Christmas, have a guy come on tell you about all the great things they're doing in year one, predict it's going to be a close game and then pick Texas tech. Cause that's the team he's watched all year. And that's the team he covers probably giving you information that you could have used on Google, but I have some short thoughts on the football game at the top. But other than that, I just don't have a whole lot for you. It's a bowl game. Uh, I don't know if it's a rather meaningful one, other than the fact that it is another game and a chance for a Miss to get to nine wins. And it definitely counts. I just don't know if there's any sort of big picture thing to be taken from the bowl game. But we do have some short thoughts for you. At the top, before we get into Bracken Ray and some basketball conversation, before we get to that, though, wanted to remind you the podcast is brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. So the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Need to check these guys out. They were coming off a 39-16 and four-day stretch in college basketball about a week and a half ago. Could I have interest you in that? That's up 57.4 units. Doubt you did that on your own. They're crushing the NFL college football bowl season is off to a great start. You need to sign up for their picks package. You can try it for a day, a week, a month, whatever it is. Just go online to skyboxsportspicks.com. Select a picks package that fits your price range. You'll get it nice in a color coded email spreadsheet that will have a guide for units, their plays and all of that. And boom, you're better equipped to profit than you were before trying skybox they're really the only way to profit in the long run you're never going to profit over a long period of time using your own brain skybox is a proven method they absolutely murder college basketball as i keep trying to tell you on this podcast think about that 39 and 16 in four days that is an absurd number that our algorithm really is locked in on college basketball as well as the nfl and ncaa football and then of course our guy skybox mark Crushing it over 200 units on the season in NASCAR. So check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Once you buy a picks package, use the promo code Rippey, RIPPEE, R I P P E E, and that'll get you 20% off any purchase. Stop paying the bookie, have him pay you. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. The podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Go see Greg, If RIPPY rights subscriber, that's RIPPY Get a free newsletter from me as well as discounted meats. They changed up the RIPPY rights deal. Greg just wants to deliver for the people. You get three. Six ounce fillets, lane train specials, bacon wrapped for 20 bucks. It's about a $40 valuation you got going there for 20 bucks. Just go in there, show him proof of subscription, and Greg will get you set up. Check them out. LB's University Avenue, Oxford. It's the best butcher shop in the world. Really just a crown jewel of Oxford. Greg wants to make your grilling experience great. All kinds of delicious sausages, fresh seafood. I like the tri-tips. I like the fillet burgers. You need to go find your own favorite. LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, before we get to Bracken Ray and basketball, I guess I do need to offer some thoughts on this football game that is coming up as the Rebels play Texas Tech there in Houston. Uh, again, what does this game mean? I don't really know. I mean, everyone's on the whole like bowl games, are just exhibition trains. I like bowl games. Gives guys two more weeks together gives coaches a couple of extra weeks of practice and you get to go play one more football game. And as a player, I imagine that's got to be pretty cool for the most part because you only get a whole limited time. So I'm not here to dump on bowl games. I just think in Ole Miss's case, I don't really know what this game means for them, right? I mean, look, if you'd have won one of the last couple of games and finished the year in 9-3, and three, you could win this game and kind of push the whole back-to-back 10-win seasons thing. That hasn't really happened a lot at Ole Miss or has not happened previously. That would be a big mark, but they didn't do that. So this would get them to nine and four on the year. Clearly you don't want to lose what five of the last six games. Uh, That's not a great uh, indicator of where things are going, but also it doesn't really necessarily mean much because I think the next step and next phase of this Ole Miss football program is what this team looks like and what this program looks like from a roster standpoint and how they fare against a much tougher schedule next year, as they are now invested in NIL with a uh, war chest and they are paying their head football coach, $9 million a year. That would be Lane Kiffin. And what that looks like. We got to talk some recruiting with Weldon Rodenberg post early signing day. If you want to check out that podcast from, I guess that was last Wednesday, Thursday, somewhere in there. Uh, There was some, uh, I guess, scuttlebutt on the message board about us being too negative about that. I didn't necessarily get that tone, but hey, if the listeners are saying that, then I guess that probably came off the way I don't know. We recorded it the day after early signing day, and we were more, at least from my perspective, more just intrigued. Um, about how Ole Miss is doing this whole thing differently, right? Didn't sign a high school quarterback again. Only had 11 kids at the time of that recording uh, signed from the high school ranks. I think that number went to 12 uh, later on that night or a day later. But definitely different than uh, the way most other schools are approaching it. I don't know if it's a good strategy. I don't know if it's a bad one. I didn't mean to pretend to sound like I knew one way or another. It is just clearly a zag when everyone else is zigging, at least to some degree, as we try to adapt to this new, I say we, college coaches, college football programs across the country, try to adapt to this new recruiting landscape. I'm fascinated to watch it play out. I guess I had some, you know, when something's different, I guess it's naturally met with skepticism. And maybe that's what was sensed uh, in the conversation I had with Weldon. I don't know if it's going to work. My initial reaction to trying to build actual like real depth in the portal and not necessarily through the high school ranks probably was a little bit skeptical, but then in the couple of days after recording that podcast, Ole Miss gets a five-star receiver in Marshall from Texas A&M and then adds a kid from Louisiana Tech, both with multiple years of eligibility left. Lane Kiffen, I think, kind of flirted, I hinted at this uh, in his post-signing day press conference about kind of the sweet spot being uh, transfer portal kids with multi-years of eligibility left. My initial thought, again, without knowing the database and all of that and how many kids are available, is really how many guys aren't there And can you actually build depth doing that? Why would they not wait it out at their other school if they aren't going to play immediately? That's a conversation for another day. But anyway, point being is I'm fascinated to watch it play out. I can't argue with the results. Ole Miss has been pretty awesome the last couple of years despite a lethargic end to this season. Lane Kiffin's won 18 games in the last two seasons. Hadn't happened a ton here. So I'm not the one to argue with, not one to argue with the results. I just find uh, maybe questioning the strategy without being critical um, to be fascinating because it is new, it is different, and I'm curious to see if it's going to work. So now that we got that out of the way, what does this football game mean? I don't really know. It's a chance to see some other guys, what Ole Miss has coming back next year. I doubt you'll get any real sense of, like, who's back and who's not, who might go to the portal and who who would beyond. I don't know. Someone surprisingly doesn't dress out or something like that. But I doubt you'll get much of a sense regarding that for the roster next year. It's one more chance to see Jackson Dart, this offensive line, and this iteration of Zach Evans and Quinchon Judkins. I say one more chance to see Jackson Dart. I just mean this season. Clearly the kid's not leaving. But uh, beyond that, I just don't have a ton for you. Again, the opponent, Texas Tech, they go seven and five in their first year under Joey McGuire. Um, they had a couple of nice wins, right? They beat Texas. They beat Houston when they were ranked. They gave TCU a run for their money. They beat a pretty decent Kansas team, but they also got the bull- doors blown off of them by Baylor, lose a tough one out of Oklahoma State and what was a game? What was a pretty good game, played Kansas State pretty tough. So a scrappy football team, but I'm not sure one that is as good as Ole Miss. So what about this game come down to? It seems like Texas Tech is a different version of the same old Texas Tech. They run different passing concepts than your like traditional air raid, but they still throw the football a lot. They don't run the ball very much. They had the top passing offense in terms of yards per game in the Big 12. I think they were in the bottom three in rushing offense, but it does look a little different than maybe the kind of the spread. Air Raid, Big 12, Texas Techie type thing that you're used to seeing. Um, They played three quarterbacks this year. Quarterback depth. What a concept. Couldn't resist myself there. Sorry. They had a senior in Tyler Shook. uh, Won the starting job in camp. He breaks his collarbone in the first game of the season doesn't return till late October Donovan Smith takes over for him and kind of has an up and down season Smith season Smith has since entered the transfer portal if I'm not mistaken so I don't believe he will be on the roster for this game for Texas Tech uh he got hurt at one point this year before Shook was back and they had to go to Barron Morton, I'm going to screw that kid's name up. Barron, I don't know. Kid played pretty well against Oklahoma State in a game that they gave them a run for their money. But Shook is back for this game and uh, it appears to be pretty healthy. Uh, Struggled a little bit to find his footing down the stretch over the final four games. Pretty good taking care of the football. The numbers won't blow you away, but pretty efficient quarterback overall. What does Texas Tech do well? They're pretty good in play action. Shook's numbers are much better in play action than straight drop back passes. And they spread the ball around pretty well. They got a decent amount of guys with, you know, 40, 50 targets on the season. And uh, do, again, a different version to kind of the, not air raid ish but they throw the ball a lot um, out of some different formations. They don't run the football very well, and they don't stop the run very well. And that's, uh, stop me if you've heard this before, going to be an advantage for Ole Miss. Texas Tech this season was the third worst rushing defense in the Big 12 of the nine uh, Big 12 games they played this year. They allowed 100 or more yards to a running back in, I guess that would be six of them. No, five of them. Six, if you count giving up or allowing 100. Sorry, no, I can't read my own handwriting here. That's not a new thing. Six of the nine Big 12 games they played. Bijan Robinson, may have heard of him, plays for Texas. 16 carries for 103 at, 16, at 6.2 yards per carry. Deuce Fawn at Kansas State. Hits him for 23 for 170 at 7.4 yards per carry. Keandre Miller of TCU, that would be 21 for 158 at 7.5 yards a carry. Eric Gray, remember that name. Oklahoma now, former Tennessee guy, 28 for 163 at 5.8. Even the Houston kid, Brandon Campbell, they didn't get to the 100-yard mark. Houston doesn't run the football ton, but 16 for 81 at 5 yards per pop. Richard Reese of Baylor taps him for 36 for 161 at four and a half yards per carry. Kansas's Devin Wall goes 24 for 193. There's a 63 yard run factored in there that skews it a little bit, but still seven yards a pop. And then they allow 19 rushes for 67 yards against Oklahoma State. They fared pretty well against that one um, for Dominic Richardson. So pretty porous against the run. Ole Miss has two really good running backs in Zach Evans and Quinchon Judkins. I think you're going to see mostly what you saw for a large part of this season is they're going to ride – judkins and they are going to ride evans probably play a little bit of ball control and really pummel texas tech into submission i don't think this is a great matchup for texas tech for that standpoint but also this Ole miss secondary is going to be tested a bit i don't know if texas tech will try to run the ball more they probably should given the way Ole miss fared against the run for a large portion of this season but again i don't see this as a great matchup for texas tech do i think Ole miss wins the game yeah probably but you know motivation is a huge factor in both season i think texas tech is probably a little bit more excited to be there, right? Seven and five, had some close games, you know, probably a bounce or two away from nine and three somewhere in that neighborhood um, in the first year under Joey McGuire, you know, home state bowl uh, Lubbock, not exactly close to Houston, but you kind of get the point, probably a decent alumni base there and are in a different phase in their program where Ole Miss ends the year um, in rather underwhelming fashion Falls to eight and four and probably was not their first choice if they had a pick at the beginning of the season would be the eight and four uh, Texas Bowl in Houston if you're picking up what I'm putting down. But it's not like Ole Miss has some sort of swath of opt outs. I don't think they have any at all. So they're going to be at full strength. They haven't played a football game in a month. They probably don't have a great taste in their mouth with how the season ended. So I don't think it's like Ole Miss is going to go through the motions and sleepwalk through this game because they don't give a shit. I don't really pick up that vibe either. Advantage Ole Miss. I think in that regard as well. So I think Ole Miss probably wins this game. I think it probably plays out a different version of maybe what you saw in 2018 where Texas tech didn't really have much of an answer for Ole miss uh, against AJ Brown, DK Metcalf, and all those receivers. I think if you replace that with the two running backs in Judkins and Evans, it'll play into that. Texas tech will probably score enough to keep them around in the game. Eventually at the end of the day, I don't think they get enough stops unless Ole miss shoots themselves in the foot and turns the football over. And I don't know, maybe they peter out in the red zone, keep kicking field goals with uh, Jonathan clean P Cruz that could keep them in the game. But overall, I think Ole Miss is the better team. And I do think they will win this football game because of Texas A&M's poorest run defense more so than anything. But, yeah, that's your preview. I don't really have much else for you. I don't think it'll have some sort of major impact heading into 2023. Um Really, one way or another, if Ole Miss loses this game, it's just kind of a sour taste to what was an underwhelming end of the season. But, again, I don't think it has much of an effect on anything. It's not like the Sugar Bowl last year where you could have come out touting 11 wins and uh, the program really on the rise. Not that the program's in a bad spot by any direction. I just don't think the Texas Bowl is going to have much juice one way or another. So, there's your preview. I think Ole Miss wins the game. Here is Bracken Ray on Ole Miss Hoops. All right, we now welcome on former Andy Kennedy staffer, Rippy Wright's basketball correspondent, Bracken Ray, fresh off the Christmas holiday. We actually, uh, the Rippy stopped by Casa de Ray late Christmas night um, for a brief nightcap. So I guess that basically means you're related now, man. How are you?
0: Yeah, I know. In Mississippi terms, I guess somehow we are related now after that. Um, But, yeah, I'm doing great. Um, Got to enjoy little Christmas uh, time off and back up in Nashville, getting ready for the new year.
1: We should have just stuck a microphone in between us on the couch and knocked out the pod then. I don't know what we were doing, wasting our time with this. Yeah, I don't know. The FCC <laughs> may not have liked that a whole lot. I don't think they would have either. It's been about, uh, what, three weeks or so since we got you on? Maybe a little bit less than that. I can't remember exactly, but... Clearly, the reason for the pod is the Ole Miss Rebels, as we recorded this late on a Wednesday or Tuesday afternoon, December 27th, is going to start SEC play Wednesday, December 28th, about 4 p.m. A little bit of a time crunch, but whatever, be that as it may, Ole Miss is going to start conference play at home against Tennessee. And I feel like the Rebels' last outing, I guess that was December 20th or December 21st, they lose the game to North Alabama. That. Actually, I think maybe changed the course of this conversation maybe more so than I thought. Maybe not in terms of the big picture, but just kind of the general tone going into conference play. And I guess there's no better place to start than there. So last Tuesday, a week from when we record this, Ole Miss loses by a point to North Alabama, who entered the day with a net of like 276. Their palm was even worse than that. They were in the 300s. I just, I mean, it was a midday game. I caught pieces of the second half because um, I was obviously working. I'm sure you were too. But just kind of general thoughts about a loss that really seemed to kill any sort of positive vibe you could muster up heading into what is a hellish start to SEC play.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And look, that uh, that game. Christmas is always a scary one and can be a trap game. I remember seven years ago this week, uh, the last Tad Pad game uh, was against Troy, and it was a very dramatic game, a lot closer than you, we wanted it to be. But you know, uh, there's nothing. There's really no excuses when it comes to you know losing to a North Alabama um, last year. Kind of same, similar time frame. You lose one to Samford. But you look back and like, hey, that was a team that went into their conference tournament and had a uh, puncher's chance at winning their conference tournament. I think one, you know twenty twenty one games for the year. Probably net Ken Palm was in the one twenty five to one fifty range. So from a brand and school recognizability standpoint, it was into the world. But then if you really watch Sanford play, they had a lot of transfers. Okay, this is one you can bounce back from. You know, this is a little bit different of a story uh, with UNA. Um, they have been D1 for, I think, three years now. Um, looking at it, I think they're maybe 6-6, six and 7-6, six, and six, something like that. And to your point, going into the game, uh, on the 20th, they were in the 300s on Ken Pom. So, you know, this is one, um, it, it kind of feels like, one of those 2013 like Mississippi state or South Carolina losses, but the difference being, Hey, those are sec teams, you know, on the road. This is, this is one that, that hurts. And, um, you know, if you have any postseason aspirations at all NIT it included, you got to really make up some ground in a brutal January.
1: Yeah, you do. And that's, that's something we were talking about a little bit the other night was just like, You know, on paper, had they just found a way to win the game, say they made a shot at the end and won by one point, it doesn't really change like probably maybe what people think about the team, but like on paper, they would have entered SEC play fine. They didn't have any sort of notable wins. Um, heading into conference play. You know, you get one against Stanford, who I don't think is going to end up being very good. FAU, I believe that's still their only loss of the year as Ole Miss beats them by 13 in early November. But no bad losses. And you probably entered SEC play, what, with like a net of like, well, I don't know, 55-ish, somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah. This one that day dropped them all the way, I think, into the 90s, which is just yeah. – I think encapsulates this better than anything in terms of just how bad a loss that was. I mean, it's up there with the worst – in program history but kind of the shame and a piece of it at least for the short term is is you could probably just kind of sell okay you made it through it what eight and three or whatever it is nine and three in through non-conference play and then what can you do in conference play where it feels like this really just put a damper on it and really hurt them position wise a ton because of the lack of decent wins they have elsewhere right
0: yeah, no doubt. And look, um, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. If you looked at their non-conference schedule, there wasn't a ton of just like, hey, huge opportunities there. I, I think Memphis has a pretty decent group. Uh, UCF's looked good this year as well, but you know they they have not scheduled like some of the top half of the teams in the league have scheduled. Um, with that being said, also though, hey, you go nine and three non-conference. So let's say you had won against UNA. Well, really, like you go ten and eight, and then beat Oklahoma State on the road, and you feel pretty good about things. Um, so it was a it was a schedule that had enough there to get some quad two wins and uh, to go into an SEC play, where I think the SEC is going to end up having like six teams in the top thirty. When all said and done, um, it, it, you you had opportunities there. So this is a. This is a crushing one, and it's kind of one of those where you got to go win two and a half that you probably weren't supposed to win just to cover this one up to get yourself back um, in in the notion to any postseason play.
1: And just beyond this, get you're exactly right on that. And I think the part that makes that such a daunting challenge is this team. I just don't think and when you talk about margin for error, and things like that, that. I just don't think they really have that, right? The path to being in the NCAA tournament conversation with this team was always going to be thin. And then you just mentioned now you got to go make up, as you put it, basically like two and a half wins in conference play. I know you got the Oklahoma State game on the road in late January. And that that just seems like almost too much to make up. And it's crazy in two, you know, 20-minute halves how that can change the season for a team with such a small Margin for error in the first place. Looking at the kind of the probably since the last time we talked, I think we did it right after they exited that uh, Orlando tournament down uh, in Florida where they beat Siena, they beat Stanford, and then they lose a close one to Oklahoma. What's changed since? And I'll just go through like a little tiny mini list I made. Is they get Ruffin back in the mm-hmm. Memphis game. I don't believe he, I was at a wedding that night in Florida, but I think I don't believe he started that game. Came off the bench. But they've now played one, two, three, four, five, five games since Ruffin's come back. And in just its most simplest sense, you look at it and in the 12 games they played or excuse me, like seven games they played before that Memphis game where Ruffin comes back, they had gotten to at least 70 points in all of them except the 59 to 55 loss to Oklahoma on that Sunday, which was a slow paced game, kind of a defensive battle from the start. If you look at it, yep. since, if you take out the Valpo win where they just destroy a pretty bad Valpo team, they scored 57 in a loss to Memphis. They scored 61 in a loss to UCF in a game where they didn't make a basket until the, after the second media timeout where they uh, were down 21 to nothing. Then they score 63 and then 65 in that loss to North Alabama It's been kind of weird, but it seems like they've gotten worse offensively since Ruffin came back. And, of course, it's not as simple as, well, they're worse with Ruffin. That wouldn't really make any sense. But I'm just curious what you credited that to, if anything, in terms of what what has changed with this team offensively since Ruffin's returned to the floor.
0: Yeah, you know, I honestly think that um, you're kind of answering your question in the question a bit. And the reason I say that is when we talked three weeks ago, I brought up that this coaching staff is going to have to make a decision of, you know, do you go with Miles Burns in and know you're going to get really good stuff offensively, but take us, you know, or excuse me, uh, really good stuff defensively? He can go take out a one through three on the opposing team, but hey, he's not going to be very prolific on offense. And on the flip side of that, all right, you got Ruffin, who now is available. He's going to get exposed defensively, um, but offensively he can open things up for you. Here's what's happened though: he is he has lost a step. It's obvious. Um, and look, a couple of weeks from now he could be back. Sometimes these things take a little while to get back into playing shape and all that kind of stuff. But roughing right now because of his size, not effort or anything like that, because of his size is a liability from a defensive standpoint. I think it's going to be exposed even more in SEC play. Offensively, he's his per minute st- stats, if you look at um, his points, his assist to turnover ratio, um, and even like his field goal percentages on a per minute basis are actually pretty good. But there's something about this offense with him not being explosive as explosive as he should be that's making it a little bit more stagnant. And what's really interesting to me watching it is it, his presence offensively right now um, in in parallel to Amari's game reminds me a lot of when Jarkel would play with Morrell, where it would, you know, Jarkel um, had issues a lot where he'd take nine dribbles without getting anywhere, right? He liked the mid-range shot. There's something up with Ruffin – and this lack of explosiveness that's making the offense stagnant. And since he's returned, it's hurt Abram as lot, a lot as well. Abram has been uh, – I mean, he has bailed them out, you know, kind of the first half of non-conference play a ton. I think he's got potential by his junior year to be an all-SEC guy. But they've got to figure that piece out um, as Ruffin's not 100% yet from an explosiveness standpoint – on why it's made that offense stagnant at times, and why it's kind of made Amari take a step back when he's in,
1: and you you mentioned that being a hundred percent yet. And if you think about the injury, he injured it what early February last year in that road game against LSU. We talked about this the last time we did a podcast, where I i be- I have no reason not to believe that he had the bone bruise with the knee or whatever it was that kept him out. But I just wonder if a piece of that too was the ACL piece of it because. I mean, even in this modern day and age of ACLs not being what they used to be in terms of like, all oh, right, you're out of here and it being a super major injury, it's still a pretty major injury. And even when they come back, it reminds me a little bit of like the picture with Tommy John. It's like, yeah, you're back, but I don't know if you're gonna immediately be yourself. And I think that's what you're experiencing, some of that with Ruffin. And I think it probably will come with time. What is the fix offensively, though? Because you mentioned the the kind of trade-off offense to defense with miles burns. But one of the things that you pointed out early in the year uh, to me on a text, I think we talked about it on the pod. Some too was they were running a lot of like design sets as opposed to like continuous motion offense, the dribble weave. I've noticed them at least to a degree, get a little bit more away from that. And it's a lot of kind of perimeter dribbling Um, for a decent bit of the shot clock. Is that just a natural piece of having Ruffin back in the lineup? Like, what what do you see as the solution here to kind of get back to an offense that, you know, is more suitable and a little bit more explosive? Because, again, it is different personnel. So I'm just curious, like, what you identify, if anything, is kind of the fix to this with Ruffin now on the floor. Because he is going to play. He needs to play. He's a good basketball player. I just don't know what they do about it in terms of offensive cohesion.
0: Yeah, they kind of found a little bit of a rhythm with some quick hitters um, with Amari and then Morrell, probably even more specifically, um, like you were talking about, hey, about a month ago. What I think has happened right now is they just and some of this is just it it comes with time and you got to figure it out as, um, as you go. But they don't know where Ruffin really is at right now. And so it's you can't have a ton of volume and all the workload on him and run a ton of quick hitters through him when you don't really know what he's truly capable of because of his injury. So what I think has happened is they've gotten back a little bit into kind of some of the continuation dribble weave, dribble handoff offense. And I don't think that that's this team's identity. I think they need to uh, run quick hitters, I think they need to run in transition. This is a very tough thing to do from a coaching standpoint, but run in transition against teams that you're more athletic than and slow it down a little bit for teams that are more athletic than you. It's hard to do that because like going, hey, three days at a time of, hey, this game we're going full speed, 40 minutes of hell. And this game, you know, we're not trying to eat the clock up, so to speak, but slow it down. That's that's hard to teach and hard to do. But I think in times earlier during non-conference play, you saw them get out and run and get easy transition buckets. I've said it for two years now. Morell's game really gets going when he can get some easy buckets, some transition buckets around the rim. There's something mentally there that gets him going. And so for this team, you got to figure out where Ruffin is at right now. That's number one. Two, I think you get back into the quick hitter game. And then three, when you can, when you're playing teams that you don't think are as athletic as you, you got to uh, get out and transition and run.
1: One of the things when we talked about like Joiner, who obviously is now gone, Morrell and Ruffin last year, is it seemed like when Ruffin came back from, I forget whatever the injury, I think the wrist thing or the hand thing last year before he tore his ACL, is it seemed like it was much more conducive for him creating for Murrell. Um, And yep. that those two being pretty like, not tailor-made but seemingly complementing each other very well as rough and creating for him do you think that's still there can they get back to that because that seemed like something that was really potent for using using potent as a term for this team offensively in any iteration of them probably seems a little strong but something that was successful for them like do you think there's a way to get back to that without the offense being too stagnant
0: (laughs) yeah and I mean honestly the answer is too simple it's all about you know, how quickly Ruffin can get back to 100%. We saw it against LSU last year, right? When he's full speed, he's explosive. Uh, He does a lot of good things. He can be a volume guy, but he can also create for others. And so Ruffin's big thing right now is he's got to get to 100%. But this coaching staff's challenge is how do you – what's the formula to score offensively until he gets there?
1: And I'm curious to find that out, and they're going to find that out in a hurry because they open with Tennessee, seventh-ranked team in the country, depending on what poll you look at. They have two losses this year. They have a weird loss to what seems like to be a little bit of a bipolar Colorado team, blew the doors off of Texas A&M. They beat Tennessee and Nashville by 12, but they're an 8-5 and five team with a couple of strange losses mixed there in between. I think Frank Martin's bunch got them uh, at UMass. But it's a really good team. It's a tough, tough start. To conference play for Ole Miss, as we outlined, right? I mean, they're going to go play Tennessee, they're going to go at Alabama, and then they're going to go at Mississippi State. Those teams are ranked. Mississippi State is. I don't know if Alabama is still ranked. Yeah, they know they are. Alabama's definitely ranked on that. So you're going to open up with three ranked teams in a row. And then it doesn't get any easier after that. You got Auburn at home, who is pretty good in their own right, despite maybe not having the greatest start to the season. I guess starting with Tennessee, I mean, what do you, I guess we'll just get into the matchup a little bit. How do you kind of give me your scouting report on Tennessee a little bit this year? I haven't watched very much Tennessee. I watched three Arizona games, oddly enough. They're super impressive to me. They look really, really damn good. Yep. They handled Indiana in Vegas in a game I watched a decent bit of, but what's kind of the scouting report on this Tennessee team and what is Ole Miss facing tomorrow afternoon?
0: Yeah, look, it's um. I think this is a, this is a rough matchup for them. Um, And uh, this game, because of the identity of both teams, may end up being a low-scoring game. But Ken Palm has Tennessee ranked number one defense in the country right now. You got a group that is struggling offensively, uh, Ole Miss, that is, right? Now, you know, the positives, and I think we've said this for a few years now, but Ole Miss is a borderline top-50 team defensively in the country. Um so it's the, the where it gets tough is you kind of have to beat Tennessee at their own game. Um it's always good, you know, playing at home. But this is a this is a this is gonna be a tough matchup for Ole Miss. I think just because of the nature and tempo of this game, you know, do I see Ole Miss getting blown out? I, I don't I don't think I see that. Um but it's gonna be a tough matchup. Tennessee has a great uh, mix of both talent and experience. And, you know, Rick Barnes is obviously a hell of a ball coach. Ole Miss in the past, though, has played them pretty well. Um, So, so that's, you know, if history repeats itself, that's, that's a good thing. But I I think this is a pretty tough matchup out the gate. And, you know, to your point, um, hey, January, and I kind of consider tomorrow January as well, just because conference play and all that, but the next ten games, you know, Ken Palm has Ole Miss projected to go three and ten in the next ten games, and I think maybe zero and four to start off. It's a it's a brutal stretch, but um, you know, the SEC, especially the top half of the league, is super talented.
1: Yeah, it is a tough start to this, and you look at it, and it's like, all right, through this kind of first six seven game stretch, what would be a good start for Ole Miss? I think they would be elated with three and three, three and four. What do you got? One, yep. two, three, four, five sixth game mark being that at South Carolina Tuesday, January 17th, like obviously three and three, there's three home games in there. Three on the road would be an absolutely incredible start. Honest to God, they're going to struggle not to go. zero and six, which would just be an absolute death knell. I mean, without just being too general, like where do you see their opportunities for wins? Clearly the home game against George almost is like a must. You get Auburn at home as well at Alabama and state like where do you see kind of their best opportunity to get a couple wins just to make sure they're not completely buried from the start of this conference play on
0: yeah um i mean look i think i think georgia at home that's that's obviously your most winnable game um and south carolina shit. south carolina on the road may be more winnable than old, than georgia at home to be honest georgia started off pretty bad um in non-conference but then they've gotten better And they beat Notre Dame the other day. Um, I watched that game. Like, they've got some semblance of – like, Whitey's probably putting in their ear that, hey, they could – if they reach expectations, they could be an NIT team, which I think year one would be awesome for them because I can't even remember how many games they won last year, but I think it was like eight games. So that would be a good – that would be a good um, result for them. So, you know, Georgia's one of them. Um, South Carolina – you know, as as well as another one, and then state is even better than Ole Miss defensively. They state's technically only worse
1: offensively, though, just off like huge raw, like larger scale raw numbers.
0: Yeah, like state's. I was that's what I was about to say. They've only got one guy averaging double digits offensively. Um, it's on the road. That's the tough part. And look, they're going to start having you know eight not the way that Jans has this thing rolling right now. They're going to have eight, eight or nine thousand people at some of these games. In conference play um especially if they can get bama in their first one but it's a rivalry game so you never know um those would be the three that i would kind of look at the most um in the month of january if you kind of include tomorrow as the month of january
1: just a couple miscellaneous notes sort of hit a couple like big picture things and and get out of here i texted you about this the other day and i don't want to do the 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 armchair coaching because kermit's forgotten more about basketball than i've ever i'll ever know but one of the things that's strange to me about kermit is he gets um kind of upset in games a lot at very random points like when they're not playing well for a few possessions and he'll go grab someone when they make a mistake and sub them out pretty quickly and it's almost like a punishment substitution method and i don't really see other coaches doing that i mean our our God, Bill Ball, high school coach, would do that like sometimes if he was like really pissed at Kevin Anthony for just not trying in a game, period. But like, other than that, you just don't see it on this level very much. Like, what do you make of that? Is that something you've noticed a lot? I just find it very odd because a lot of times you got to let guys play through mistakes and it's tough to get in a rhythm in a game. When you see your coach, like you make a mistake, you see your coach kind of reflexively grab someone else in anger. And all of a sudden you're coming out of the game. That to me would just be, be tough to get into the rhythm of a game. Why do you think he does that? And do you think it's as big of a detriment as I'm making it out to be? I do think it's a problem. I don't
0: understand the psychological, psychological background to it. Um, my, my issue with it is probably, you know, there's the pattern piece to it, right? You're taking people out of their rhythm. And in today's day and age, like you kind of got to adjust to these players and these players are different than they were 20 or 30 years ago. You got to let them play through mistakes sometimes. Um, so that's the first thing. That's why you don't see it a ton anymore. My bigger piece with it is since, you know, this is year five, he has had some really good defensive teams. Hey, this is, you know, right now you just lose the UNA. You know, statistically this is kind of looking like it's going to be maybe the worst team that he's had in his in his five years. And you're still borderline top 50 in the country in defense. He pulls guys a lot for getting scored on in relatively low-scoring games. And that's the one where I'm like, we're addressing – it seems like we're addressing the wrong thing here, right? Hey, we got to I think you pull guys more for, hey, we're running this dribble-weave thing, and you're running the offense just to run the offense rather than score. I'm taking your ass out, you know, before the media timeout until you're more aggressive, get downhill – Try to create for yourself or create for others. Hey, um, I looked up and there's four minutes left in the game, and your guy's got six points. You just got scored on again. Now he's got eight points. I'm pulling you. That's not that's not a huge deal, right? So that's kind of that's what I that's what I can't really wrap my head around is you make the great point of the patterns and the rhythms and it, 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 the modern age of basketball. You can't do that to these guys a lot. My thing is more of why is it happening when you play you know six and a half minutes and your guy hits one bucket on you and then you're getting pulled
1: and it, it I wonder if some of it just goes back to his middle Tennessee days where it's the recruiting pattern seems to be a little bit the same right he loves a kind of a lot of guys in that six seven to six nine range forward a little bit positionless where it almost seems like at middle, I'm assuming he did that, you know, similar way. Where he just it was kind of positionless. You could stick someone in there, and it didn't make a ton of difference. Where as much as they struggle offensively in SE, now that he's in the SEC, like you talk about disrupting rhythm and why they're doing it, and like you know, like you just mentioned, you're addressing like the wrong problem. It's like like you said, they're top fifty team, borderline top fifty team defensively, despite all of their struggles it'd be one of those things where it's like you already kind of need everything you can get and all the pieces to align offensively to make yourself an offensively competent team. And you're just kind of shooting yourself in the foot while also not really solving the problem. It's almost making it worse, if that makes any sense.
0: I t- totally agree.
1: So I guess kind of building on on that a little bit, um, actually, this next one's a complete non-sequitur. i always am fascinated by the long Christmas break for Ole Miss right? They have a ton of out-of-state students. They have winter session, but the Christmas break for Ole Miss is long. I mean, I don't even talk in sports. Just Christmas break in general is longer than in really pretty much any other school. When you guys were at Ole Miss, whether it was in the Tad Pad or when you moved into the pavilion, did y'all ever, is that ever something that y'all thought of as a disadvantage at all? Not having the students for sometimes three and a half weeks of conference play. Whereas after new year's others, most other schools are just back where that kind of seems to eat into the home crowd home court advantage at all. I'm just curious if that's something that ever came up when you were on staff under AK. Yeah. I mean, those kind of things, you don't talk
0: about just a ton. Um, you kind of control what you can control. And, but I will tell you it, it, it's a disadvantage and you got to think about it this way, right? If you look at all the p programs in the country, um, Ole Miss is it, it, Oxford is one of the smallest populated towns out of all p5 schools i think clemson is smaller and then um where what is washington state what's um pullman pullman or maybe corvallis is is that where oregon state is yep okay i think one of those two is really really small as well but oxford hey you gotta it's a very small town knoxville you know is got one hundred and fifty thousand people. Tuscaloosa has a hundred thousand people. I mean, you go across the board, um, and you know Baton Rouge post Katrina has turned into a very heavily populated city. So you've already got the issue of you're a very lightly populated town, and then you have this six week intercession. Now, the intercession from an economic standpoint for the university is a really good thing. It's a it's a revenue generator. But the six-week deal definitely hurts Ole Miss because you you look up and you're, you know, a third of the way through conference play, may, maybe even more than that, and your students aren't on campus yet. You have three or four conference games out of your nine where your students aren't on campus. Um, and technically, you know, that last two weeks or whatever, you've got, you know, maybe 2,000 people in town for winter session. But – I definitely do think that it's something um, that hurts the school, but but I don't know that you can make a decision off of basketball student attendance because of the amount of revenue that it drops into the school.
1: I don't think this year for Ole Miss is necessarily like it was for you guys last year under AK where it was like, I didn't say tournament or this could get weird with the irony. And that is, is things got weird about nine months before you guys started your season to only add on uh, on top of kind of the tension, that was building. I think this team needs to be relevant and somewhere in the postseason conversation when they get to February for things to potentially be okay in terms of the future of the staff. I think everyone is kind of on the same page with that. I don't even really know how to ask this, but like, what do you think the case with that of like for that is? Like, can this team be five and seven, six and six with? Six conference games to go? Like, do you see a path to them being somewhat in the mix and recovering from this at all?
0: I mean, you know, sure there could be. Um, I think that Ruffin getting healthy and then figuring out this guard rotation is super critical. That's step number one. I'm concerned about the bigs a lot. Um, We looked at, you know, going into the season, I think there were three bigs that, Um, were defensive player of the year at their previous school. And obviously we said, we've said it a few times today, but Hey, Ole Miss is at a pretty okay place from a defensive standpoint. I, I think that some of these bigs are going to have trouble um, with, with a few sec bigs in particular defensively, but as a whole, we should be okay from a front court defensive standpoint. A guy that comes to mind for me is KJ uh, Williams at, LSU because he can they they're they play some five out offense he can step out shoot the three and I don't know who you have that can guard him unless you go really small at the center spot but nonetheless you know hey defensively okay your front court maybe it's probably in an okay place we thought defensively they'd be at a really good place but offensively they're giving you nothing um you've got if you look at the stats it's like four points a game two points a game two points a game you know Uh, four points a game break fields at like seven they're giving you nothing um offensively and one thing that I would try out a little bit more if I were them and this goes to your point of hey you gotta if you can get to the NIT and make a run maybe you can sell a six year you gotta be able to sell the guys that are coming back Malik Ewan against um against UCF plays 21 minutes perfect from the field 10 points five blocks and five rebounds uh, like I said, 21 minutes. The next two games plays four minutes each. I'm riding my freshman big there. He's raw. He's got to get a little bit more athletic in the off season. I think a strength conditioning program can get him there. But I'm riding him a little bit more. Um, he's long. I think he's every bit of six ten, six eleven. I'm I'm letting him go play. Right. I mean, it's it's been pretty bad offensively it's been okay defensively at that front court spot especially at the center spot Malik Ewan we saw some hope we saw something that we really haven't seen out of any of these bigs back um out of the center specifically this year I'm rolling the ball out and letting him play a little bit more especially after that UCF game and let's just see what happens um you know so that's that's one thing that I see there with the bigs morell's about as expected this year so far his thing to get to the next level, especially if he ever wants to be a pro and make, make money, is he's got to be able to learn in, to dribble in traffic a little bit better. Uh, he fumbles the ball around a lot trying to get downhill. And with how athletic he is and his shot looks pretty good this year, if he could learn to dribble in traffic, that's another thing that I think could help this backcourt back elevate as Morrell tries to get healthy.
1: You nailed it with the bigs not giving you anything offensively. I mean, look, Brakefield's at like seven. I think Burns is somewhere around that seven mark, two. But after that, it's McKinnis, four, you know, Mbala, two, or excuse me, four, Allen, four, whatever. Like, I I guess to me, it it starts with Brakefield a little bit. He's at seven points and five rebounds a game. And don't you need that closer to like 12 and eight? I mean, he doesn't have to be a double double guy, but that's a highly rated kid. He's a kid you got from Duke after a year. And just seven and five for a kid that was really has no other choice than to play a pretty major role in this team. That's just not really going to cut it. That to me is where it starts. I don't know what you've thought of his season so far, but to me, that's been fairly underwhelming.
0: Yeah, agreed. Um, there's been flashes. My thoughts on his season so far has been inconsistent. Um, he, you know, he had that he had a decent, uh, pretty decent outing in their uh, Thanksgiving tournament, and I thought he looked a step quicker. When I watched that tournament as well, but then, you know, he's he's taken a step back. So you're right at that four spot. He's one that needs to be giving you 10, 10 to twelve a game. He needs to be shooting mid to high thirty percent from the three point line. I would always I've always wanted his his release to be quicker. Um, that's one thing. He kind of winds up. He has to be. He can't be contested when he shoots. He's got to have a foot or two of space to be able to shoot. Um, but you're right, you know, Brakefield is is one that he's got to be giving you more, especially with the de- deficiencies that this offense has.
1: And on top of that is is not only the, the big's not giving you anything offensively, you're one of the worst, you're, I think you're the second worst sheet, uh, three-point shooting team beyond actually, ironically enough, Arkansas uh, heading into conference play. And Kermit made a remark after that, I think it was the North Alabama game talking about We're really struggling offensively. We've got to find some three-point shooting Uh, I mean, you worked in the coaching field, but I don't think it takes a genius either. Are you really going to find that? Like your roster's already (laughs) together. Where where are you going to find that? I was like, is he going to pull guys out of the stands? I was very uh, kind of mystified by that comment. And if you're not going to be a great three-point shooting team and your bigs don't give you much offensively, that really just kind of paints the picture of where they're at, right? Like, I I just don't know what they do about it. You've got to become a lot more efficient in the post or you got to have two guys that can really fill it up. And it doesn't seem like they have either right now.
0: 100 percent um and you know one thing and this is not to downplay skill development at all but if you talk to a lot of really good like college basketball recruiting evaluators and stuff like that and they're looking at high school guys and they're talking to high school coaches and their AAU coaches whatever the case may be you have to have your shot coming into college most of the times um like there, there are definitely guys, you know, you can find examples out there of guys who have higher percentages in the college game. than They did in high school, 100%. And that's not to, and this is not to knock skill development, but a lot of the times you either know, or you don't know coming into college, whether a guy can shoot or not. And so sitting here, you know, in December, getting the conference play. And I think morell's is kind of the exception to this, but, um, not having three-point shooters it's a problem but the bigger problem is this has been an area that has been brought up for the past three years now
1: it hasn't been addressed
0: it's been yeah it hasn't been fixed
1: and like to your point i mean you got morell, i think he's like 34 percent. that's not exactly breaking the house down i think ruffin who doesn't take very many is like 36. But outside of that, you're, you're struggling to find anyone over 30. They're 31% as a team. That's just, I don't know. In today's modern basketball, that seems to be going against the curve without elite guys down on the block. And I just don't really know what exactly the end goal of that is. That was one of the things, and this gets to like, kind of as we wrap up here, the bigger picture conversation of one of the underrated aspects of you guys and Kennedy staff as a whole and his whole tenure there is they could go find shot makers and shot creators. And is it just Kermit looking for a different type of player? I'm just, it seems like with the portal and so many different guys out there, you guys and Kennedy the entire time he's there never really had problems going and finding guys who could make and create shots, particularly perimeter jump shots. And they've really struggled with that. I'm just curious why you think that is.
0: Yeah, I think, um, you know, one thing that – and I think he probably even talked to him being – Kermit talked about this during his opening presser is, hey, we want to go get long athletic guys, right? And so what's happened is he's gotten a a lot of guys that are kind of like three fours in my head, small forward, power forward. Um, The issue is you've got to have guard skills, um, it, you can't have eight or nine guys on your roster who don't have guard skills I think Arkansas and Alabama are great examples of it they've got these long they've got a few long athletic guys that are tall you know like Arkansas's point guard was six seven um, they've got long athletic guys but they're guys that have guard skills and right now there's like seven or eight guys on this roster who who can't who couldn't dribble on the wing at all. So now you know you don't have a lot of depth. All right, now then Ruffin's hurt. All right, you miss on Robert Coward, and that's going to happen. You're going to miss on some guards, and it, you just it kind of all domino effects. And so that's that's been the whole premise of it from an offensive standpoint. From a defensive standpoint, I think it's actually a positive. Right, at, if you're athletic and you're long and your effort is high, you're probably going to be a pretty damn good defender. Boom, Hermit's uh, defense the past five years has been pretty good. But offensively, there's just not enough dudes with guard skills, and the only guy who's got wiggle and can create is a healthy rough, and he's not healthy right now. Um, so you And then you look at it, hey, we know three-point shooting percentage is bad, We know uh, that we've only got one guy who can, uh, who's got wiggle. So now you don't have shot makers from the perimeter and you don't have guys that can create from the perimeter as well. And that's kind of, you know, that's the start of uh, a bad deal when it comes to offense going into conference play.
1: And it parlays into selling the product and having an entertaining product, right? Like AK had bad teams that were really interesting and fun. I know the street ball thing got thrown around a bunch. It's uh, not, not accurate, nor was it fair to AK at all, but they had bad teams that were interesting. Where like Kermit's teams. When they struggle, it's a really tough watch. And even teams that weren't particularly bad. I go back to that team two years ago with Ramella white and that group where Coming out of the pandemic, they were that win. If they played OSU that night, they played OSU that night, that Friday of the SEC tournament. And if they won that game, they may have very well ended up in the NCAA tournament, which really changes the entire conversation of this Kermit Davis tenure. But did anyone have a great time watching that team? I didn't see a ton of like, man, these guys play yeah. a brand of basketball. It was very grading. And even that team that was remotely successful was a pretty tough watch on the eyes and i know you can't necessarily recruit to be like we got to just go be entertaining i I get that that's not really how it works but don't you think that has to factor into it some is just when you're i mean this way they're recruiting this way they're playing basketball you better be pretty damn good and efficient at it because if things go even just marginally bad it's just a tough product to watch and at a school like old miss you got to have ways to draw people into the stands and watch basketball games that's their one of their biggest challenges right now is getting people to show up to the gym and I'm never one to tell people to do with their money. I don't care if they show up to the games or not, but they just don't have the incentive to do so. Cause even again, like I said, when they're bad, it's not very fun. Where again, AK had teams that struggled, but they were kind of fun and interesting. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that
0: I think it's a good point, right? Um, it's one thing. Hey, if you're going through some spurts where you're losing, but it's got to be something that you can that's entertaining to watch. To your point, I think from like 06 to 16, Kentucky was the only team who had more all sec guards over a 10-year period than Ole Miss did so if you've got a lot of if you've got a lot of guards all conference caliber guards that's going to be entertaining right and then hey you couple that with kind of a fast-paced play or you know pro, you've got prolific scores in there et cetera. you know that's going to be entertaining to watch and so I mean, I think it it makes a great point. Hey, one thing to lose, it's another thing for it to lose and it being hard to watch, um, you know, when you look at the overall state of the program.
1: And so as we – I don't want to hit a ton of this because I know, unfortunately, I think it's trending in a direction where we're going to have to hit a lot of this toward the end of the year as we move forward on this podcast. But I listened to Chase and Neil last week in the car driving home um, and on my way to the glorious city of Texarkana, Texas – uh, when they, I think Neil had gotten back from uh, Idaho and they were talking about the loss and whatever. But, you know, if this doesn't go well, I think there is going to be a coaching change. I don't think I'm any breaking news with that. But just assessing the current state of the Ole Miss job, it's no secret. They're kind of behind on NIL. Um, there's not a ton of great support there. But one of the ways they frame the conversation is, Do you go get an old guy, an older established coach that kind of knows the rigors of the SEC or just high major college basketball in general and just see what he can drum up, what he can work with from a financial support standpoint and just kind of make whoever it is is going to have to make, you know, do a little or do a lot with a little, at least in the short term, until something major changes, they'll miss basketball. Or do you go find a younger guy to do that as well? I think, do you view the job if they do make a change through that lens at all. I'm just curious where you weigh in yeah. on the older, more experienced guy versus a younger up and comer. Where do you fall on that? And what do you think they might do or should do if you were on the show here?
0: Well, here, I, I'm going to kind of pivot your question a little bit with something that I'm hearing. I've heard a lot the past couple weeks. weeks, um, and it's definitely been accurate in the 2000s, like the 21st century. I hear a lot about – you know, we're going to know in a couple months, hey, did Keith and then, you know, at the time, Ross make the right decision or not, right? And so, you know, there's probably three different outcomes of this year. Um, one of them more realistic than the other two, but hey, uh, you go to the NCA tournament. You go to the NCA tournament, that's two and five years. That's a success in all this basketball. All right. B, you go to maybe like the NIT final four, make a big run and you've got these three good, good guards coming back. Uh You think if you can add some bigs, you'll go to the tournament next year. And you know, if you fire your coach now, you've got, you may lose some of those guards to the transfer portal. All right. So then you see is what I think a lot of people think is going to happen. And this thing ends in not a great way. And you've got to, you know, you got to, go in a new direction so those are the three outcomes that can happen this year but the thing that i keep hearing is uh and and so we'll know off, you know with keith and all that but the thing that i keep hearing is hey there's a there's issues outside of the coaching staff right now with the program and it has to do with is the university invested enough in, in in the program and what what I can't wrap my mind and play, play devil's advocate to this too, because I think it, it could be a good debate, but what I can't wrap my mind around is, all right, you've got a top 10 arena in the country from a nice you know nice niceness standpoint. You, your head coaching budget is borderline top 25 in the country right now. so you're at I think 3.05 million. Um, I, I don't know what it stands today, but when this staff was hired, they were at 900000 in assistant coach salary. You go to the tournament, you'd have to assume that went up to at least a million. That puts you borderline top 25 in assistant salary, and I've heard good things about the recruiting budget. So you've got those four things, one being really good facilities and three being financial investment into the program. Um, the fifth is NIL. And that's new. It's been, you know, this thing for a year and a half or so now. In my opinion, NIL is 50% the university kind of leading the way and being invested and talking to the right people. And the other 50% is just the fans. Like the fans have got to step up and be involved as well. So looking at these five areas, all right, facilities, head coach, salary, assistant salary, recruiting budget, and NIL, how much more can the university be doing? Right, like, right. and this is not a me defending Keith thing. I just think a very positive from our athletic program in the past. Um, I guess you could call it a decade. And an- another thing you add into there too that's a positive is SEC network money, but that kind of affects some of these salaries. That's what's helped it. If you're a Keith outside of all right helping nil which is a part of that job now they're allowed to speak to it outside of helping NIL and making the right hire. What, what else can you be doing?
1: Yeah, I mean, he's a basketball guy. He's a former basketball program alum, right? It, I mean, it's it's abundantly obvious. It's not a situation where the AD does not care about basketball, which, I mean, Neil says it all the time. Ole Miss can't just a- afford to punt on basketball and be a baseball school. Just not really how it works from a revenue standpoint. But you're exactly right in that sense. Like, what more can they actually be doing? You got the facilities. They built that arena. Like, what can they do more in NIL? Could they plug it more? I, I don't know. These are questions I don't know the answer to. A lot of this would just be 2nd yep. guessing. But you bring up a good point because, again, it's not a situation where the AD is not familiar, nor does he not care about basketball. You're talking about a guy who played for Ole Miss in some of their best teams ever and played professionally overseas for quite a while, right? Like, that question seems to be answered in a lot of ways just by the the background of the head man running it, Right.
0: Yep. And, and I think it goes to, all right, so all those things, hey, you control what you can control, then you get into the NIL situation. So there's, there's if people and people being fans or people being university administrators, whatever the case may be, if they want to consistently go to the NCAA tournament, so we'll call consistently every like two and a half years, whether Kermit goes this year and he stays on, life is good, or uh, goes to the tournament, and uh, stays on, or, hey, this thing doesn't go the way people want it to and you get a new new coach. In my opinion, for Ole Miss to be going to the NCAA tournament consistently every two and a half years, it's got to be middle of the pack at minimum in the SEC and NIL. It's got to be. And as of today, it's not, it's not there yet. You probably would have to 2X, maybe 2.5X where you're at today to get to middle in the pack of the the SEC. And so my whole point of this is, all right, Keith's got this great right-hand man in Alan Green. Honestly, you can make an argument that he's the best deputy AD on paper in in the country, seriously. All right, so you've got this great deputy AD. You've got all this lame bullshit behind you. For the next three months, I'm spending time on – figuring out this basketball NIL thing, because regardless of, I think everybody in their minds is assuming that this thing's going to bottom out out and it's going to get bad and all that with this Ole Miss basketball team this year. Hey, that, that, you know, Ken Palm says you're right as well. But regardless of if that happens or if you go to the NCAA tournament, if the goal of this program is to get to the NCAA tournament consistently, I am working today on getting this NIL situation up. And some of that's got to be Keith. I think Grove Collective has great people, and they did an awesome job back in November when it was needed. So some of it's got to be that. And then third just has to be there's got to be fan and booster support, um, you know, to get basketball to the next level. You make the point, hey, you can't punt on basketball. And, look, I'm biased. I worked for four years. And, I, you know, b- before that, I probably saw – 200 Ole Miss basketball games Um, I've been pretty invested in it but regardless of us who are more invested in it than maybe your casual Ole Miss fan like you've got this great arena there's a ton of TV exposure with the SEC network and then another piece is a lot of high school students go and watch basketball games because of how they're you know, visiting times and junior days and all that stuff line up. So it's a it's a really big thing for you know attendance and enrollment as well. So I think that the the main thing that I'm focusing on if I'm leading the charge, if I'm the keys of the world is hey, how do we how do we go get this thing to a million? How do we get it to a million? If you can get it to a million, you know, you're gonna be at a pretty good spot to get players. If you get it to 1.2 1.5, you can go steal P5 coaches, established ones, um, if, if there's a job opening as well. So, you know, that, that's kind of my point there. I've, I've heard it just of the past month. It's like, hey, is the university invested enough? And look, it was an issue, you know, and, and sometimes with Rod Barnes, the Tad Pad, right, under AK, you had the lowest assistant pull out of all P5 coaches. But a lot of those things have been fixed now. And um, I think that the administration, I'm not the biggest Ross guy in the world, but Ross and Keith did a good job of laying the foundation, you know, for this program half a decade ago to get some of those resources up. And so now really it's all about um, closing that gap on NIL and if you really want to consistently get to the tournament, exceeding what other people in your conference are
1: doing. You're doing pretty well up there in Nashville. How close are you to be able to lay down a million yourself? Maybe the Bracken Ray Jumbotron. Is is that in the works in the near future?
0: Yeah, I keep seeing these, uh on I forty, I keep seeing these lottery ball tickets. And so <laughs> I, I have I have thought that um, you know, if that ever happens, you know, we can do that. And you don't have to name the court after me either. We'll just we'll just go buy some players. We'll go get it done.
1: You make a great point in all seriousness, uh, but the the one of the things you just popped up that I thought was kind of funny is you mentioned like a lot of these high school kids go to basketball games. It made me think of like recruits. How what was AK's attitude? I mean, I know he loved he liked two freezes, he liked the football program and all that, but what was did he? <laughs> I just can't imagine his thoughts where you guys your last days of the tad pad. Y'all are having to hide recruits from coming to the tad pad, whereas the bat the football team's bringing them in there an official visits. to come watch games I just never thought about how funny that dynamic is I bet AK loved that
0: yeah he loved when uh like I guess it took maybe two years for the pavilion to get built because he's like I've got a lot of shit out of that hole in the ground (laughs) he's (laughs) like I got a lot out of that hole in the ground um and you know you've probably heard the stories before about him you know taking kids to Della Davidson and telling them that's the new arena and then if it was a kid who uh, was a big Nike guy. He would tell them that Della Davidson, the elementary school, was going to be a, a strip mall. Those are all true stories. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, we never... I mean, there was there there would literally be guys coming to uh, campus in June and their first workout in the Tad Pad would be the first time that they've ever seen or stepped foot in the Tad Pad that we recruited for two to three years.
1: That, talk about a tough sell there. Last thing before I will let you go... Uh, just as we enter conference play as a whole, has anything surprised you about the SEC? It seems like Arkansas is talented, but I don't know how great of a team they are. You know, Mizzou gets the doors blown off of them by Kansas, but they've won every other game. I think they're 11-1. and one. Just as you look at the SEC as a whole, entering SEC plays anything stood out surprising, you can go good or bad?
0: Look, I knew that Jans was talented and he would be a good fit. Um, he's probably exceeded expectations in year one. I know we hate to hear that because he's in Starkville, but – They're a tournament team um, for sure in my eyes. Bama's probably a little bit better than I thought they were going to be just because they're so young, but you don't expect them to be as composed as they are um, with that much youth. And I think Nate's done a good job. And then one that I told you at the beginning of the year that I was keeping my eye on as kind of a sleeper team is LSU – and I think they sit today like 10 and one or 11 and one. Yeah. But um, they, they haven't played anybody. So they're one that I'm going to watch a lot. Ken Palm actually has them finishing 11th in the sec and they're 11 and one right now. So there's wow. something, yeah, there's something there. Um, pro- a, a lot of it's probably got to do with strength of schedule, but I like that group too. Cause he brought some guys from Murray over and they've got some uh, transfers that are good. So I want I kind of want to see LSU start to play you know, some of these top half of the league SEC teams and see what happens there, because I think McMahon's setting himself up for a big year two or three at LSU. Um, those are kind of my high-level views. I do think that Gates has done a good job at Missouri. Their schedule hasn't been super crazy yet, so it'll be interesting to see them as well once they start playing some tougher teams.
1: What's up with Cal at Kentucky? My, I have a couple. So one of my friends in, when I was in media has got him, Derek Terry, who I actually think he got out of the business too. But I see a lot of Kentucky basketball stuff. I follow a couple of their guys on that beat. Um, they seem to be very unhappy, not the media, but just the reflection of the fan base, unhappy with the way things are going. What, what How does this Cal thing end? Like, what, what, what do you see in Kentucky, like flaws, whatever, with Cal? It's a fascinating storyline that if they don't start well in conference play it could get a little spicy, I think.
0: Yeah, and I th- honestly, I think a little of it is kind of pump the brakes because their strength of schedule um, is really, really good. Um, they played Michigan State, Gonzaga, Michigan, uh, UCLA, and then Yale, who typically is pretty good as well. So, I, you know, I think it's a little too early for them. Um, I think they – you know, I could see them still winning 11 or 12 conference games this year. Um, And I like their team and that freshman that they've got. So I'm not super concerned about that. Um, If you're a Kentucky fan and, you know, you go to the tournament and lose first weekend of the year again this year, hey, look, there's serious conversations that need to be had. But, um, you know, I don't don't see any super big calls for concern yet with Kentucky because – uh, some of the teams that they played, you know, they schedule super, super hard, not in conference.
1: That was really all I had. Uh, do you have any inside scoop on the Jackson Academy defensive coordinator getting hired to the same position at Kent State? Did you see this? J.A.'s <laughs> football defensive coordinator took the Kent State defensive coordinator job. What Are we just a football factory <laughs> now? What, what's the deal there?
0: Yeah. um, So somebody sent it to me and I actually Googled it. And that guy's been a college coach his whole life, except for this one year at at JA. So I guess it was like, I don't, I don't know if they hired him for a year and he kind of, it was just a, you know, he was sitting on some buyout money and whatever, but um, I think you need to tell the viewers um, at some point in time about how you were the, First and last ever player coach in MAIS history.
1: I was. We uh we got the anniversary of the shot he- heard around the world coming up. We will have to relive that story in greater detail as you were the assist man on that one as we get deeper into January. But that's right, I was a we, 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 we
0: may We may need some shit to talk about when we get into January.
1: I was like a slightly shorter version of Bill Russell, I guess, is basically how I viewed things. So, uh, you know, you can debate on who was more successful – um, in their careers, that will be one that will be talked about at barstools to the end of time. But uh I just thought that was wild. I was because I said to Chase, he was like, "Really?" And I was like, "Supposedly." I looked him up the same way you did. I was like, "Ah, oh, this is a college guy who probably just went for a year, or maybe he's running from the grind of the MaIS Six A North." Who knows? But best of luck to him and getting out of the gauntlet that is that. Here is Bracken Ray. Appreciate the time as always, my man. We'll hire you in a couple weeks as we get deeper into SEC play. But uh be well and I'll hire you soon.
0: All right, holler at you.
1: All right, that was Bracken Ray. Appreciate my man's time. As always, always enjoyed chopping it up basketball-wise with him. Hope you enjoyed it as well. We will be back later this week. Walden and I will probably do a brief kind of post-bowl pod on Thursday, but because of kind of conflicting schedules, work, a couple other things, that will probably be a little bit shorter pod than you are accustomed to, but we will regroup after the New Year's weekend and do kind of a full-on season and review. Be looking for that maybe Monday or Tuesday, depending on when we can get our schedules worked out. And then I have another pot at the end of the week for you that's not really old Miss related, but uh, caught back up with my uh, close pal Michael Portner, NFL agent, represents Orlando Brown, and now Laquan Treadwell. Just talk about where he's at from an agency standpoint, uh, kind of his goals and chronicling his journey as he tries to you know cut his teeth and become – an established NFL agent. Had a couple people on the board asking me what all my guy partner was up to. So uh, good to chop it up with him. Don't get to see him as often as I used to in college, which was every day because we lived together for three years. So it's always great to uh, see him, talk to him, and kind of see how he is doing. So we'll have that podcast for you probably on Friday. Again, a shorter one with Weldon and I on Thursday at some point after the conclusion of the game on Wednesday night. And then Weldon and I will have a bigger season wrap-up Sometime around the weekend, depending on how the New Year's Day, the Monday after and all that shakes out. So be on the lookout for that. Appreciate you guys listening to this podcast as always. Probably don't say it enough, but I really, really appreciate the feedback, both good and bad. As we conclude another year of this thing, Um, it's been a ton of fun and I'm looking forward to a great 2023. So we'll talk to you later on before the turn of the new year, but uh, y'all enjoy the game and stay safe out there.